morning. So we're uh, reading this morning, Mark 2, verses 18 to 22. So it's on page 1004. Okay. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. And uh, thank you, Carly, very much indeed for your prayer a moment ago. Please do keep your Bible open at Mark chapter 2, which was read to us. Well, we are continuing the series in the early chapters of Mark's Gospel. The overall title, which you'll be aware of, I'm sure, is Jesus is Thrilling. Jesus is Thrilling. Why do we say that? Because of the way in which he transforms our lives. Now, he shows us that being a Christian is not some sort of dull, drab, routine, but it is a life of joy and adventure in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now today, the subject is fasting, and you may well not feel that uh, fasting has got much to do with adventure or joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may not indeed be at all familiar with the practice of fasting. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up if you do fast. Uh, I certainly won't be asking that now. But it would be interesting to know, we must ask ourselves, is it something we know anything about? Fasting means intentionally going without food. Uh, not to lose weight, but for a God-centred reason. So uh, it might be to do with time. might be so that we are able to set aside time to pray or to seek the Lord's guidance. Uh, it may be to do with having more money to give, perhaps especially to those who are in need. Most of us would endorse these aims. What we're not so keen on is the fasting that uh, sometimes goes with them. Uh, we go round the supermarket on the day that the weekly shop is done and we see all those things on the shelves that cause our gastric juices to get excited as we think, yes, we'll have some of that, two of that, three of that, 
But when did we last, rather than taking something off the shelf and putting it in the trolley and eventually having to get a bigger trolley because the first one wasn't big enough for all these things we were getting, when did we actually last put something back on the shelf? When did we hear a little voice saying to us, yes, not this week, I'm afraid. That one's got to go back. Well, I've got uh, three points today on the subject of fasting from Mark chapter 2. And the first is that fasting is a secondary matter. Fasting is a secondary matter. Uh, in other words, it's not an absolute requirement. Let me read you verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? See, this is not an absolute requirement. It's something you may decide to do. You may decide to do it. It's up to you. You may not decide to do it. Uh, the subject arises here because some people have come along to ask why Jesus' disciples are doing what they're doing. What are they doing? I mean, these people come along and they say to Jesus about his disciples, he says... Uh, that, or they come to ask rather, because Jesus' disciples are fasting. I'm hoping for some reaction at that point. You should be telling me you've got that wrong. It's not that the disciples are fasting. In fact, the disciples are not fasting. And you should have been waving at me and saying, will you kindly make sure that what you teach us is accurate? You see, they observe these people uh, quite a number of people, John's disciples and the Pharisee and the Pharisee's disciples were also fasting. So there was a lot of fasting going on amongst John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. And the questioners see this happening, and they observe what the people are doing, and they uh, ask. They therefore go to Jesus and say to him, "How come?" How come the disciples of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist are fasting, but your disciples are not? What is the reason for that? See, they evidently think they should be. I mean, the whole tone of the inquiry is one basically saying, you know, you really, you should be fasting. Your disciples should be fasting, shouldn't they? But they, they don't. And... Uh, it is evident that Jesus does not agree with these people. They think that those of John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are doing the right thing. They are showing what it really means to follow God. But, whereas you may say uh, fasting might be a good thing, the emphasis of this passage is to question that in a number of ways. They think everyone, or all the disciples involved, should be fasting. They assume that fasting must be a good thing. I mean, after all, it's a, it's a discipline, isn't it? It shows you mean business. Uh, it makes you look a little bit more religious. And after all, isn't that why Jesus has come? 
to make us all rather more religious? Well, no, it isn't. Jesus has come to bring people to repentance and faith, to win that mighty victory over the devil and all his works, that we might one day have salvation and go to glory. So Jesus' coming is to destroy the works of the devil. Fasting might have a part to play in why Jesus has come, possibly, but not necessarily. The Bible teaches that fasting is basically a matter of individual liberty. And in such matters, where scripture allows freedom, we should not impose law. Let people decide. It might be good, it might not be good. What there should not be, of course, is any pride in us about doing it. The fasting, that is. Uh, Incidentally, there are lots of issues which this sort of argument concerns. Uh, Not just fasting, but take, for example, a positive thing, the daily quiet time. That's the daily time that you get to pray and read your Bible. Uh, And we believe it's a good thing to do that every day. But we must be careful not to impose that as a law. It isn't a law, it's a help. Uh, Or you could take a different sort of issue. Uh, Let's have, for example, the the eating of meat. Uh, Whether you are a vegan or a vegetarian is entirely a matter of indifference to being a Christian. There is no way that the Bible commands uh, one person, the Bible commands the eating of that food or the not eating of it. It is a matter of liberty. So it's a matter of liberty because it's a secondary matter. That's the point. It's not an absolute primary thing. It's not a law. It is a matter of freedom. Second point, there is a time for fasting. This is verses 19 and 20. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Now we notice that Jesus begins his answer with a a time when fasting is plainly inappropriate. Uh, It's a wedding that's going on. A wedding which, of course, is a day of great joy. Joy focused on the happy couple. And joy which, uh, when they turn up, the party really gets going, and uh, it involves a very good meal. Now, we're not going to go up to the bride and groom and say, look here, you shouldn't be doing this, you should be fasting. This is most inappropriate that you're getting us all to eat this huge amount of food. Uh, But quite plainly, Jesus says, that is totally the wrong thing to do. How can the guests, verse 19, of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They can't do that. Uh, whether this is a marriage between Christians or even simply a marriage of the two people, man and woman, from the human community. 
we rejoice with them. And this is not a time to fast, it is a time to feast. That's what you should be doing, uh, and that's what is appropriate. But fasting would be completely inappropriate. However, the, the circumstances will change. Uh, and if you look at verse 20, you see that Jesus, uh, <coughs> Jesus makes this point. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, that will be taken from the friends of the bridegroom, on that day they will fast. See, the crucial difference between those two situations, in the one, the bridegroom is with the guests, or the guests are with the bridegroom. But now in verse 20, that is no longer so. He has been taken from them. And this is a time when fasting is appropriate. Uh, we don't know precisely what Jesus means by this, of course. I mean, he could be referring to his own destiny, to what was going to happen in his life, and his earthly ministry would come to an end. Uh, and that is very possibly the meaning here. Indeed, if Jesus is referring to himself, then he would be talking about his arrest and his crucifixion. Some references from Mark. Mark 14, they took Jesus to the high priest. See how that is rather like verse uh, 20. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Mark 14, they took Jesus to the high priest. Mark 15, the soldiers led Jesus away. Mark 15, they led him out to crucify him. The end would come to Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, but he doesn't say that it necessarily, this necessarily is the meaning here. It could be simply that the wedding celebrations are finished and life goes back to normal. And the honeymoon, well, they had a good time, but uh, that's over too. It's all gone back to normal, rather prosaic by comparison with the joy of the wedding ceremony uh, and, um, the, uh, and the celebrations. Uh, bride, maybe the bridegroom's work takes him away from friends or family. Jesus deliberately doesn't define this so that a wider application is possible. But I think, or my opinion for what it's worth, is that it is making the point, as it says that fasting is a secondary matter, this is pointing to the end of Jesus' ministry when he would be arrested, suffer and die. So the first point then, fasting is a secondary matter. The second point, there is a time for fasting. Now the third point, fasting belongs to the old covenant. Verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. 
Now, someone may say that those two verses don't mention fasting, as a matter of fact. Didn't you notice that? Fasting is not actually mentioned specifically by name in verses 21 or 22. That is true, but the context is uh, very close. The verses on fasting that we looked at in 18 and 19 and uh, the, uh, the, the <coughs> uh, things that follow with the verses that follow with regard to uh, the bridegroom bride, uh, no, I'm sorry, I got that wrong no. verse 21 uh, the unshrunk cloth and then uh, the old wineskins in verse 22 um, and the point is that there is this contrast between the old and the new and the new and the old and frequently when new and old are put alongside each other in the Bible, they're referring to uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And that almost certainly is what Jesus is illustrating here. Uh, we move on from the wedding celebration to two other places, the, serving, the sewing room and the butler's pantry. So uh, I know nothing about sewing, but actually, I, I don't have to know anything about sewing to be able to understand this illustration. I don't have to be wise in, the, uh, in the, all this stitching uh, in order to understand Jesus' point. The seamstress has got to mend a to torn garment. That's the situation. This torn garment has got to be mentioned. Uh, it's got to be mended, and. Uh, this good lady seamstress is going to do it. Uh, and lo and behold, she's found some material of the same cloth. I mean, that's terrific. It's pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, this, this uh, dress was made somewhere down in Jericho, and now uh, Jesus up in Jerusalem is talking about it. And, uh, and she's found this material which is just like the one that the bit got ripped off. And this is incredible. So, uh, surely she should use it. It would be good. Well, actually, no, she shouldn't, because it's new cloth, and the new cloth has not been shrunk. And the result will happen when this dress gets sent to the wash that it will, uh, the, the water will act on it, and probably the heat will act on it, and the result will be that the new cloth will shrink. And what happens when the new cloth shrinks? Answer it pulls the cloth away from the old cloth. So that although you thought you were going to make a nice mend, in fact, the net result on the dress is the situation is worse than it was before. Uh, verse end of 21, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. So don't go and do that. Don't try and patch up the old with the new. A patch like this doesn't work. Throw the thing away. It's not worth keeping. And exactly the same is true with regard to the old covenant made with Moses and co. That its usefulness, in effect, Jesus is saying, has now outrun. He has not come to repair it, but to replace it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
The old has gone, the new is here. Uh, but we've got one more illustration, and Jesus gives it here. Uh, and this is especially for the men. Not women's work this time, the sewing, but men's work, the decanting of wine. Didn't have any bottles in those days to keep the wine in. Uh, it was kept in wineskins. And old wineskins, of course, dry out with age. But, and if you decant new wine into old wineskins, you are heading for disaster. I mean, that lovely wine, which is new, and so it's fresh, and it's full of life, but it will burst those wineskins, those old wineskins, if you put it in uh, to them. So verse 22 no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. It's a glum picture, isn't it? I mean, the, the uh, uh, wineskin goes pop or whatever it does and the wine is spilt out and you watch with dismay as your premier grand cru vintage wine dribbles all over the ground. Oh dear, it disappears. Well, what the budding sommelier needs to know is that, or rather needed to know, because of course we have bottles, so we're better off than they were, but what he needs to know, or needed to know, is that what was essential at that point was not old wineskins that would just do, but new wineskins that would contain the wine. Only new wineskins can do it, but that's, they are the one that can. So verse 22 says, uh, first having talked about um, the new wine will burst the old wineskins, and both the wine, skin, wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Notice the similarity of these two illustrations. The cloth has no potential for shrinkage, so it gets ripped. The old, the other piece, the new piece, rips it. The old wineskins have no potential for expansion, so you cannot possibly use them. In both cases, you see, what we need is the new joy uh, of uh, that Jesus gives to those who follow him. Uh, it's a different picture from the way in which things go wrong if the wrong materials are used uh, and the way in which uh, the, uh, the, the new, new life is, is what is needed. New life symbol, symbolizes or symbolized in these two illustrations, of which Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So then, whether or not you decide to fast at some stage or for some reason, it is entirely up to you. It's your choice. You decide to do it. You decide the time and the place and what you're not going to eat and how you're going to use the time and so on. 
But one thing is essential. Be sure that the joy of the Lord Jesus fills your hearts as you fast. I mean, our relationship with him is far more important than fasting or anything like it. Let Jesus fill your heart with what Peter, in the authorised version of chapter 1 of his letter, said this. He called it joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the joy that you give to all who truly love you. And we pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we may get to know that joy more and more, that we may experience it and it may fill our lives and our hearts. And we pray that consistent with that, we may use the time, the opportunities uh, and all that we have in this life to serve you and that in that way the joy you've given us may also reach others. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Amen.